So I'm going to teach for just, a, I don't know, about 30 minutes about this series we've been going through called Overflowing with Thankfulness. This is our Christmas series. It is also a study of the book of Colossians. But the idea here is to get us in the Christmas spirit and uh, to think about what difference Christmas makes. And the big question today that we're trying to address with this message is, um, what fundamentally does it difference does it make to follow Jesus to your everyday practical life? And it's a little disturbing when I think about how hard that question can be to answer. This should not be a hard question to answer, but it's really tough for us because we know non-Christians that seem like pretty nice people. We know a lot of non-Christians that seem like better people than a lot of the Christians that we know. So we have a lot of non-Christians that are nice, compassionate, kind, generous, everything Christians should be. And we know a lot of Christians that are just not very nice people. (laughs) And so it begs the question, what difference does it really make to believe in Jesus? What fundamentally does it change to have faith in Christ? That's the task before us today. I want to make clear, these questions are not hard to find, y'all. These questions are in the Bible They're pretty clear. So they're not hard to find. They're just hard to explain to people who are just awash in a culture that is comfortable with what uh, one author that I read calls Christian atheism. And that is a uh, intentionally provocative term. (laughs) The reason it's provocative is because there's some truth to it. Have you ever known a Christian atheist? Yeah. You have, and it goes deeper than you think, okay? So uh, Craig Rochelle was the pastor that introduced me to this, this phrase, Christian atheist, and he did it in this book that he wrote by the same name, and he said that a Christian atheist is someone who um, believes in God, but they don't live as though they believe in God. You ever known someone like that? Have you ever been someone like that? <laughs> the truth is we all have. No one who believes in God lives that way 100% of the time. And so all of us, to varying degrees, practice some form of Christian atheism. This is the longer quote from the book that I think is, is telling. So uh, this is from Craig Rochelle's book. He said, Christian atheists are everywhere. They attend Catholic churches, Baptist churches, Pentecostal churches, non-denominational churches. And as a Methodist, at least for two more weeks, I will say that they also attend Methodist churches. They attend big seminaries. They are every age and race and occupation. And some even read their Bibles. Christian atheism is a fast-spreading spiritual pandemic which can poison, sicken, and even kill eternally. Yet Christian atheism is extremely difficult to recognize, especially by those who are infected. Fascinating, right? This idea, what makes it insidious is when you have it, one of the symptoms is you're sure you don't have it. A presenting symptom of Christian atheism is denial. I feel sorry for those guys, whoever they are. Thank you for delivering me, God. Well, wait, tap the brakes. 
because most of us probably fit the definition of Christian atheist to a T. Christian atheists are people who say they're following Jesus, but really they're just fans of his. And the difference is when you're really fundamentally following someone, their trajectory affects your own. Most people who say they're following Jesus aren't really affected by his trajectory day to day. Some of us are, but a lot of us aren't a lot of the time. It comes and it goes, right? Some of us would like Jesus's trajectory to be affected by ours. That's what's called being a fan, not a follower. But a Christian atheist will say, I believe in God, but they don't know God. You know the difference? Like I've been there. I've believed in God most of my life. But knowing God in a relational way, that's a, that's a different thing. A telltale sign of Christian atheism is when you have someone saying, well, the job of a Christian is to be imitators of Jesus. We're supposed to be kind, generous, and nice, and forgiving like Jesus was. And that's true. But it's only true if it doesn't come at the expense of intimacy with Jesus, which should come first, imitating him is a natural result of having intimacy with him. Most of us avoid intimacy with Jesus and with probably everyone else because most of us are really uncomfortable with intimacy. We avoid it like the plague. And, and, and you know, I think that's, that's obviously Christian atheism. That's what Christianity is, should be intimacy with Jesus. And yet I understand this is still a difficult concept to relate to. And so I decided as a way of... I don't know, bringing this home for you. I decided to take a page out of the book of one Jeff Foxworthy. You remember Jeff Foxworthy, the great comedian who the, uh, you might be a redneck guy? You probably haven't heard from Jeff Foxworthy in a, in a while. You know why? Because he gave up full-time comedy and he's teaching Bible studies on the streets of Atlanta to homeless people almost every day. He's an awesome guy. Look up his latest stuff on YouTube. It's incredible. But I decided to take a page out of his book. And instead of You Might Be a Redneck, I'm going to play a little game called You Might Be a Christian Atheist. Okay? So uh, this is, you're about to get momentarily really upset at me. Okay? But just know this is going someplace and it's not about you. Okay? So here, here we go. Uh, <laughs> this is how to tell if you're a Christian atheist. All right, I wrote a whole bit, okay? This is, if preaching doesn't work out, I've got a fallback plan. The next Jeff Foxworthy, okay. okay, okay. So if, if you're a parent, if you have kids, all right, and your kids know that you would be more upset at them for skipping school or soccer practice than you would be if they skipped church, you might be a Christian atheist, okay? It's a little awkward in the room right now, a little awkward, I like it. Anybody that knows me knows that awkward silence is my love language. I'm in my comfort zone right now. All right, if it's, if it's acceptable for your kid to skip church but not school, you might be a Christian atheist. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so if your church or your preacher teaches something from the Bible, that contradicts your politics of choice, be they left or right. And your first thought on the way home from church that day is, well, I guess it's time to find a new church. And not, I guess it's time to rethink my politics. Because remember, I said that part about it being in the Bible. 
<laughs> if you think it's the Bible that's wrong and not your politics, you might be a Christian atheist. Now, here's another one. If your Instagram followers and Facebook friends know more about your vaccination status than they know about your salvation status. Hello, anyone? You might be a Christian atheist. If you can, without any problem and no hesitation, and actually a fair amount of pride, tell someone who's lost how to get to Austin from here, but you can't tell them quite as easily or shamelessly how to get to heaven from here, you might be a Christian atheist. And here's the one that's really gonna get me in trouble. My inbox is already filling up, I'm sure, from the prior two services. Are you ready for this? Some of you don't even know the fire I'm about to step into because you have not been familiarized with the cult I'm about to offend, okay? So here we go. If, <laughs> if you can name and explain every Enneagram type, but you can't name and explain the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you might be a Christian atheist. Whew. Okay, all right, I'm cool enough. Because Enneagram people are crazy. First of all, and <laughs> if you're highly offended by that comment, maybe, maybe it's you and not me. Anyway, so I, you could say the same thing about any personality test, but I had to go after the Enneagram people because y'all are the craziest ones, okay? If you can name and describe every type of the Myers-Briggs or whatever, but nobody's, you know, nobody's losing their minds over the Myers-Briggs. Anyway, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on. Is that okay? I'm gonna move on. I'm gonna go forward. I hope you have an idea of what it means to be a Christian atheist rather than just a Christian. And I hope you understand that this is all of us because even after you come to faith in Jesus, you're going to struggle with learning how to stop bending the knee to the lesser gods of your past or bending the knee to the popular gods of the present and to bend the knee only to Christ. And that process is called sanctification. And it takes time. And it takes grace. And it takes self-discipline, self-denial, as we've talked about in the past couple of weeks. All right? So th this is important. And this is what we're going to talk about today. The Christian life should look different. It should look different as you're sanctified, as you stop bending the knee to the gods of old, the lesser gods, and you bend the knee to Christ alone. But how exactly does this happen? How do we look different than non-Christians or than we lived before we came to faith? So we're going to look at this question through the lens of Colossians, and we're going to read this passage from Colossians in three parts, okay? So everybody have your Bibles? Christian atheists. Okay, so uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, so I've got a few people that are real Christians in the house with your Bibles. Just let your neighbor look on, you know, and don't judge them at all. Just Judge them a little. So, <laughs> you know what I'm really excited about? Have I told you guys this about the, the Bible holder thingies at church, at the new building? Okay, okay. So there's fixed seats at the new building, not these ones, and they are the most comfortable seats you will ever sit in. Okay, I promise you. They are ugly as sin, but they're super comfortable, and you're going to love them, and I'm afraid you're going to sleep through my sermons because you're going to be comfortable. Some of y'all have only been kept awake by the absolute abject discomfort of these seats, <laughs> which are beautiful, and awful. The other ones are ugly and awesome, okay? So you're going to love them. But the best thing about them is on the back of every seat, there's a Bible holder thing, like a real church. We're going to have pew Bibles, and y'all will not have an excuse 
to not hold the Bible as I read. Okay, back to the sermon. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Okay, here we go. Uh, Paul wrote to the Christians, first-generation Christians in Colossae, around the year 60 uh, in the first century. He wrote, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what still is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Everybody's really confused about this first little verse. I almost didn't include it, but I think it's important. Paul is saying that when we suffer as Christ suffered for the sake of Christ, it is a way of looking ahead to and maybe even speeding up his return. So what is lacking means when, when there has been enough pain or darkness or whatever in this world, maybe Christ will come again. That's kind of what Paul's alluding to here. And he's talking about the, the life of the Christian being one of absolute servitude. All right. So then he says, uh, for the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for generation, I'm sorry, for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. The mystery, he said. Hold on to that word. So, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, the glorious riches of this, there's that word again, mystery, which is, everybody say these next three words with me, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Okay, so the first way in which living with Christ, in which the Christian life is distinguished from the non-Christian life, is this revelation of this mystery that Paul's so obsessed with here. The, the revealing of the mystery like capital M, mystery of mysteries. Paul is alluding to this idea that it is the question on every human heart that is revealed in Christ. What is the mystery that is revealed in Christ? This difference maker that changes our lives fundamentally, the mystery of it is Christ in you. Christ is synonymous with God in the New Testament. We're talking about God in you being the mystery of mysteries, the answer to every cry of the human heart. Why? Well, let's, let's dig into this just a second. At Christmas time, every Christmas, we, we celebrate with Christmas songs, and some of y'all uh, love uh, the, the Christmas carols. Any Christmas carol lovers? Okay. Does anyone love the song, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? Right? Great song. O Come, O Come. Can I sing it? Emmanuel. And da, da, da. Okay. She got it. Okay, so something about Israel. Anyway, so, <laughs> okay, okay. The point is Emmanuel. And that's what Christmas is about because Emmanuel in Hebrew means God with us. God with us is a powerful statement. It is not, however, unprecedented in the Bible. Christmas isn't the only time in which God broke through to be with his people. Now, obviously, this is the incarnation of God. This is a very real physical witness that's a little different. But throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were, were 
were blessed by God's presence with them. God was with them in the wilderness. God was with them all the time throughout the Old Testament. What makes Christmas special isn't Emmanuel. It's not just that God is with us at Christmas. It's that God didn't stop there. What makes Christmas special and why anyone cares about Christmas today and why we sing these songs is that it didn't end with Emmanuel, God with us. That's where it starts. And so the story begins with God with us at the cradle, but then it develops 30 years later, God is there for us on the cross. And then three days after that, God rose before us out of the tomb so that one day we will too overcome death and darkness and have our own resurrection. God with us, God for us, God before us. And at Pentecost, we celebrate God in us. And the Holy Spirit poured out from above, received by every willing believer, No longer is God just with us or for us or before us. He's in us now. We're the temple of his spirit. We are, 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 like the song said earlier, I don't know if you heard the words of that song. It was perfect. I'm not even sure we planned it. It's just a Holy Spirit thing. My heart is his home now. Your heart is the home of God. And this is a game changer. Why? Because the, 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 the real philosophical point Paul is making here, and he's a profound philosopher, the point that he's making is every human being who ever lived has asked the question, the existential question, why am I here? What am I doing here? How did I get here? Who put me here? And if there is at the center of the universe a maker, a creator, who is obviously better than me, because he made all this and he's sustaining it and he knows how to keep it all together. I can't even keep my life together for a day and this guy's up there running everything perfectly all the time and he's good and he's powerful. And the question in the human heart becomes, how could I ever belong with him? How could I ever be acceptable to him? How could I, being who I've been, ever find the way to him? And the Christian answer is you never had to. And you'll never have to find your way to him because in his mercy, he has found his way to you. By no doing of your own, he's found his way to come and be with you, to die for you, to rise before you and to be in you through his spirit. Rearranging the brokenness, putting pieces back together, making you whole, again, sanctifying you. And this actually has even more, I think, more profound meaning when you look at who Paul was writing to. Who is Paul writing to in this, in this book called Colossians? He's writing to a bunch of uh, new Christians who were living outside of Jerusalem, Judea, outside of the Holy Land. These were Gentiles. And if you read two-thirds of the Bible, the first two-thirds of the Bible, it, it, it looks mostly like God has a certain group of people that he really wants to reach. And there's a few hints throughout the Old Testament that God has more, bigger plans in mind to reach other pastures of sheep. But really, it's about Israel. And so you have, you have Paul, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the religious professional, the Jewish man, saying in the first century to a bunch of Gentiles that the mystery has been revealed, the mystery that is Christ in you. And what this means is lost on us today because we've, we, we can't relate to it really. 
because we've never really lived in a time, or really, I guess, there's ways we could relate to it, but really we can't understand the Jewish-Gentile phenomenon where the God of Israel belonged to Israel for generations. And suddenly, through Christ, he belongs to the whole world. He's available to the whole world. Regardless of ethnicity, family name, background, religious identity, where you were born, what language you speak, what color you are, regardless of any other superficial realities, this God is yours and you can be his. Paul told a bunch of Gentiles who've never followed the law of Moses, the mystery of mysteries is Christ in you. Look, at, I mean, it's even more radical than that, really. Let's look at this verse in verse 28 again. He said, Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Who can be presented as fully mature? The ordained guys? The professionals? The guys at the Vatican or the guys at the conference office or the guys who, who preach good or the guys who know the Bible or who, who can be fully mature in Christ? Everyone? Think about what an uncontrollable movement the gospel is proposing here. What an uncontainable grace. Now, churches have tried again and again because we're human. We tried again and again to put these hierarchical structures in place where we have order because we cannot live with all this chaos and we have to, uh, we, we really need to flesh this thing out, Paul. Sorry, Paul, but we just can't be talking about everyone having access to the equal access to this, to this power. We have to control it. We've got to get, some, we got to get our hands around this, Paul. Thanks for your advice. <laughs> Paul's giving us the full gospel here. And he's saying, everyone, everyone, this is, it can only be interpreted as, as the most inclusive truth claim the world has ever known and the most inclusive movement the world has ever seen. Truly inclusive. And it came from God, not institutions of higher learning, not philosophers, not men. It came from God. Everyone belongs. Everyone can be fully mature, not because of their own abilities or understanding, but because of God and his grace being available to everyone. Look, I've had a lot of experience lately. Well, not even lately, my whole adult life, you know, I tried to become one of those people that prides himself on being inclusive. Inclusive, inclusive, inclusion was like one of my catchwords. Inclusion, and it's important to be inclusive. We must be inclusive, inclusive, more and more inclusive. And I realized the more and more I, I made my life about being inclusive, the less inclusive I became of people that disagreed with me. And I've kind of been on the other side of it in this past year, as you know, all these events have happened and, and I've discovered that the people who claim to be the most inclusive are the ones who will throw you away. Like they're the most dangerous people. The ones who say we believe in inclusion will, will often forsake inclusiveness um, because if it's just based on your feelings, they run out. And so Christian inclusion is not based on your feeling like including everyone. In fact, real 
Christian inclusion comes from following Jesus and will make you deeply uncomfortable. You will be shocked if you have the privilege of going to heaven by who is there and who isn't. (laughs) That's the scary part for preachers because Jesus is pretty heavy-handed with us. But anyway, y'all are good. You're good? It's me that's in trouble, all right? So... uh, Anyway, I think, I think the inclusion of Christ far exceeds our own because it's about who he is and not what you feel. It's his identity to include all because he made us all in his image, all right? So this is, uh, this is an uncontrollable and beautiful, powerful movement of God, uh, this vision cast in the New Testament. So uh, this is one of the ways that... Uh, Christian living or the the Christian life should stand apart, all right? We should live this mystery of Christ in us, God in us. Second, let's go to these next five verses from Colossians chapter two now, verse one of chapter two. And some of this stuff could preach itself. It'd just be me reading this and we could go home, but I refuse to do that because I've got to have the spotlight. Okay, so <laughs> Colossians chapter two, verses one through five. Here we go. I, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea. That was a sister church, a neighboring church in the region. And for all who have not met me personally, Paul didn't start this church in Colossae. Someone else did. All right. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, that may, they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery, there's that word again, mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is spiritual understanding. Knowledge is natural understanding. All the treasures of understanding are hidden in Christ, is what Paul's saying here. More on that in a minute. He says, I tell you this so that, you may, that no one may be deceived by the fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit. Delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So the second way that that faith in Christ changes your life fundamentally is by helping you to map the spiritual minefield. And the minds that, if if you never walked through a minefield, I'm guessing no one's walked through a minefield, maybe a couple military guys, but but like most of you played Minesweeper. That's probably as close as we've gotten um, to walking through a minefield. But if you can imagine every step you take being dangerous, treacherous, potentially destructive, That's the image the New Testament paints for the believers. And the gospel helps us to discern where to step, where not to step, where the dangerous steps are, okay? And the the minds we could potentially step on are not like physical explosive minds. They are spiritual. They are thought minds. They're bad thoughts that look good and sound good on the surface. But then you step on them and everything changes, okay? So these thought minds Paul describes as fine-sounding arguments that deceive believers. What do they deceive believers to think? Really awful, heinous, evil things? No, 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 no. That's not how the devil works. The devil's way smarter than that. The the deception is this. The deception is, uh, I'm still a Christian, but I do this other thing too. I'm still a Christian, but I, I hedge my bets a little and find some of my identity over here. I'm still a Christian, but I find my identity in in my job or my looks or my you know, athleticism or my achievements or whatever, my family. I need something more to justify myself. That's the deception. It's usually a fine-sounding argument. 
Now, it's hard to know what the Colossians were guilty of here. Exactly. Paul's vague. Why is he vague? I don't know. Maybe he doesn't want to offend them, but he knows what they're up to. And they know that he knows what they're up to. And he knows that they know that he knows. Anyway, so, but he doesn't share it. I wish he had because I like to gossip and I would have known, like to know what these Colossians were doing wrong. But he doesn't tell us. He hints a little bit. He, he hints around that they were doing something like worshiping angels which is weird, but it was not that unpopular or not that uncommon, I should say, in the first century world. And uh, they were worshiping angels and they, some of them were like super stoic in their philosophy. So they would, they would deny themselves basic necessities in life, but, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. That's fasting, but they also wanted the whole world to know how good they were at denying themselves. So those kinds of things were happening in Colossians. Now, Paul wanted them to know that none of that can justify them any further than Christ already had. And once you start believing that other things you do and invest in can justify you further, you've lost the plot on the gospel because Christ is your everything or he's nothing. Now, I have to be careful here because that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you have to become some religious weirdo who burns every book in your house except the Bible and, and throws away all the CDs or whatever else you have in your house, except for, you know, Amy Grant or whatever. I don't know. She's still around. Anyway, so the, uh, the, you can't, it's not that you can't do other things, all right? The point of the Christian life is to fall so in love with Christ that everything that you do, you do through him, you see through his filter. And if it's not compatible with Christ, you stop doing it. If it is compatible with Christ, you do that thing to honor Christ, to glorify Christ. You can read other things. You can find other books to read, other, other paths of knowledge and whatever understanding you want. But all of it ties back to the knowledge and wisdom, the treasures of knowledge and wisdom, all of which are found in Christ. So he becomes, uh, he becomes everything for us, right? Now, the, the, the problem for us is maybe, maybe, maybe you're not worshiping angels, Anybody ever worship angels in confession time? Worship an angel? Man, this is your cue. This is your cue, man, if you have a wife with you. I worship Geo, yeah, back in the day, you know? Uh, so you can, you probably haven't worshiped angels or, or uh, maybe you haven't done this hyper stoicism thing that they did in Colossians, but, whew, but uh, do we step on these landmines? Gosh, we do, we do. I mean, we try to supplement the gospel of Christ through our job. Guys, women too, like a lot of us find too much of our identity in our job. It's not that you shouldn't work hard. You should work hard. In fact, some of the problems we run into are the seasons in life when we don't work hard enough. We don't go to bed tired enough, so we just stay up late at night and think about ways to get in trouble. You should go to bed tired because you work hard. But if you invest some of the chips you should have down on Christ elsewhere, you invest your heart's, uh, you know, your heart's investment in, in, in your, your career such that were your career to go away tomorrow, part of you would too. And if you go to a social event the next day and you introduce yourself to someone you don't know, you don't even know how to introduce yourself anymore. I'm Eric and, and I'm a... What am I? What do I do? 
Who am I? You know what I mean? It's easy to get our identity wrapped up in our job. Or, or, or as I said before, our looks. If your looks went away, would, would you? Would you have the same presence, the same countenance, the same confidence as a person if your looks faded, as they will? <laughs> Everyone, I know we're all believing in this plastic surgery thing, but man, I'll tell you what, fillers just don't do the whole, it's gonna happen. You're gonna lose the looks. Ladies and gents, who will you be then? All right. Parents, we overparent. All of us overparent. Sounds like a good idea, a fine sounding argument. Everyone else is doing it. Until you realize you went from overparenting to worshiping your kids. You're serving them. They're God. And they know it. <laughs> and they wield the power <laughs> over you. And they call the shots. Sounds like a good idea until you wake up and realize you've raised monsters. Okay, so <laughs> we, we easily give in to these fine-sounding arguments. Some of them are just thoughts. Thoughts like, my past really does define me. I'll never live down that season that everyone else remembers. I am my past. I am my mistakes. Maybe on the flip side, I am self-sufficient. I have what I have because of what I've done, how hard I've worked. No, no, don't let yourself go down that path or step on that minefield, on that mind, because everything you have and everything you are is because of the grace of God. And but for the grace of God, you'd have nothing and be no one. And that's the simple truth of the gospel. So easy to get off track. That's why it makes a difference to have faith in Jesus and to allow his spirit to map the minefield in front of you. Third and finally, and I'm out of time, but third and finally, real quick. I'm hungry too. Okay, I know y'all are hungry. All right, third and finally, the last thing we'll talk about is based on these last two verses. Here we go. This is Colossians chapter two, verses six through seven. Paul wrote, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted in him, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. All I want you to see here as we, as we wrap is that this, all of these examples, these analogies Paul writes about, they're all written in a passive voice, which probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable because I want to be in control of my own destiny. Paul says, no, 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 all you have to do is be rooted. I don't know if there's any horticulturists in the room, but last I checked, roots don't root themselves. They don't plant themselves. They are planted they naturally are sustained by the soil in which they're planted. They are nourished by the gardener. It's something that happens to them that allows them to root. And, and, and the other thing about being a root is that you're unseen. This happens in secret when it's just you in Christ, intimate with God. And you learn what it means to root, just receive the nourishment from God. And eventually there is fruit that the world sees. The first step is to be rooted in Christ. And then Paul talks about being built up in Christ. And, and a building doesn't build itself either, at least not yet. They might one day. But they, at least so far, there's no self-building buildings that I know of. There is a designer. There is a builder. And what do we know about Jesus' living, what he did for a job? He was a builder. Construction is what he did. And so to be built up in Christ means that when someone sees you 
and your physical presence in the world, they don't just see you, they see Christ in you. Being strengthened in the faith is also something that happens to the muscle. It doesn't, it's not something the muscle wills or desires. It's something that happens to the muscle when it's part of a greater body, the body of Christ. This is something that happens to you when you receive it, when you re- receive what Christ does. You're rooted, built up, strengthened. And then Paul says the natural outcome of life in Christ is one that is overflowing with thankfulness. This is an image that is, it's actually, it's actually like an image of a fountain, this overflowing, the, the word Paul used, a fountain, a fountain of grace though, because what went into the fountain didn't just come from inside of you, but it was given to you by God. And you become a fountain of grace and, and what you're overflowing with is something you didn't have to generate, but it was just given to you and there's so much of it, you can't contain it. And it's, so it pours out into your home and into your workplace, hopefully even onto your Twitter feed or into your social life. And you can't contain it because no matter what the circumstances are in your life, you're profoundly grateful. Even after 2020 and 2021 and what a nightmare these years have been, the believer in Christ, the follower of Jesus is overflowing with thankfulness because our identity isn't found in our circumstances. We don't get better when our circumstances do and we don't get worse when our circumstances do. All we are is Christ in us. And he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so your your level of thankfulness isn't affected by what's going on in the world. It's just grace. And there's all kinds of things, these, these worldly things that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful to be a father. But before I'm a father and a husband, I'm a son of the father. That's who I am. Before I'm a Huffman, and with the Huffman blood in my veins, I have Christ in me and Christ's blood poured out for me before anything, before I have success, before I'm a failure, before I'm good or before I'm bad. I am Christ in me. That's my only identity. That's the real difference that living as a Christian makes. It makes you impervious, impervious to highs and lows, impervious to what we call happiness or what we call depression, it makes you impervious. It sets your feet on a rock that does not change. Truly makes a difference to be in Christ rather than not. Reveals the mystery of Christ in you, even you, even me. It helps you to see where not to step and what thought minds to look out for. And it changes the game really with grace. It is a a reward system that is unlike anything the world's ever seen. Everywhere else you've been, everything else you've done has been based on what you can do for someone else. And as far as God is concerned, it's based on what he has done for you. No matter what you bring to the table, you receive the same gift. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray right now, specifically, pointedly, for the skeptics in the room who are just on the fence, people that just frankly don't trust Christian leaders like me uh, or the things that Christians have to say, or maybe they've not even really trusted the Bible, 
people that have really struggled um, because of maybe something they've seen or something that's happened to them in the past as far as Christians or church was concerned. I pray right now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would break through all of that noise. You would break down all of those walls and that, that, that the skeptic in the room right now would be willing to, to consider the possibility that you are exactly who the gospel says you are. That you don't wait from a distance for us to find our way to you, but you instead chose to find your way to us. We love you. We love you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.